Today on The Novelizers, The Daily Show's Josh Johnson, The Best Show's John Worcester, plus Lisa Gilroy and intern Kevin Carter. Now here's your host, Andy Richter. What if you could turn lead into gold? It sounds like a simple and honestly pretty stupid question. And yet, that very question obsessed the wisest people for centuries, from China to Egypt and across Europe. Those who attempted it, the alchemists, became some of the world's first scientists and medical researchers, despite the fact that their ultimate goal, transmuting lead into gold, was never achieved. Until now. That's right, I, Andy Richter, have accomplished what the ancients could not. How? By taking useless leaden movies and transmuting them into beautiful, gleaming literature. I do it with a process known as novelization. This season on the podcast, we're using our dark arts to novelize the film Independence Day. I'm happy to say our experiment is a complete success. And here to catch us up on the first half of the movie is my lab assistant, Kevin Carter. Kevin, catch us up. Oh, sure. Well, the Earth is attacked by aliens, so Will Smith and his buddy Harry Connick Jr. go up in airplanes to try to stop them. Which is crazy. That's kind of like going up against the Death Star with the motorboat. Of course they get their butts whooped, but uh, the Fresh Prince somehow manages to survive and even captures an alien. Total coincidence, he crash lands right next to Area 51. So he drags the alien there, then the president shows up too. Thanks, Kev. Today's first chapter was novelized by Jeb Lund, who has written for The Guardian and Rolling Stone, and narrated by comedian and Daily Show writer Josh Johnson. Josh Johnson, novelize us. Chapter 13, No Ice, novelized by Jeb Lund, narrated by Josh Johnson. David yanked the freezer door open in exasperation, careful not to let the jerky motion spill any of the liquor in his other hand. Seized an ice cube tray and knew even before he felt its unwelcome lightness that no joy would be found here. Just my luck, he said. No ice. Although, what do you expect? The government had secretly built a break room right above the secret command center of Area 51, presumably for any visiting moms to get a good long look at the nuclear codes and their beautiful son Tad dialing up coordinates to dust Moscow. So maybe those same low-bid brains hadn't ever envisioned ice. Then again, maybe there'd never be ice again. That was a thought he'd have to get used to. Maybe this was the end of compressors, of insulation, of human civilization building freezers. Even if humanity survived, he'd seen the devastation in New York and wondered whether it would have water again. If it didn't, that meant the end of good bagels, good pizza, of everything you could only really get in New York because of the water. He'd argued about this until he was blue in the face, but he could never make people from lesser coasts see the truth. Maybe this was the unintended gift the aliens had brought, an end to being misunderstood about even the humblest explanations of why everything was just better in New York. He smiled a mirthless little smile and closed the freezer door. Of all people, the aliens understood that, and they weren't even people. A civilization advanced enough to cross thousands of light years in a trice, and the first thing they were blowing up, sure as hell, wasn't Philadelphia. He resisted the urge to spit on the ground. I take it you've heard. It was Connie. Somewhere behind him, he turned to see her leaning in the doorway, luminous in the can lighting of Area 51, nervously picking at her fingernails the same way she did back in college. When he laid out his plans for their first road trip to Philly to deface a statue of Benjamin Franklin. She looked incredible, somewhere between office couture and bedraggled. What he used to jokingly tell her was her hornier Bonnie Bedell estate. She joked back then when the terrorists came, he could have her in any state. He wanted to, and he knew his eyes must be devouring her like a starving man going face first into the fried rice at the China Super Buffet. So he cut them away. He didn't know how long he'd live to remember this moment, but he knew he always would. Her eyes were brown. The terrace were green, and they'd fallen on the world from out of the blue. This was the day, and this was the hour. And by rights, they should be running and crawling over each other like two grease ferrets in an oilskin sack. But here they are. He returned his eyes to her and raised his iceless tumbler. A toast to the end of the world, he said. 
not sipping. He didn't come to this decision lightly, she said. Moving into the room, even now, spinning for the president he believed had sundered their marriage. He, him, the president, fuck him. David wanted to take her in his arms, but he didn't want her to know that. He already felt childish enough waiting to radiate sex all over her like a running microwave without a door. Instead, he turned his back. Unsure of what to do with his hands, he grabbed a bottle of Bushmills and poured more into the tumbler. He sniffed audibly. Protestant whiskey. That sort of thing wouldn't fly in New York either. Then again, nothing was going to fly in New York for a long time. Not from LaGuardia or Kennedy, which were New York airports. They had the best drinking fountains of any airports. He realized too much time had passed since he last spoken. You still believe in him, he said. Good, on topic. Nothing about wanting to summit the inside of her thighs by clutching at them like a koala. Well, he's a good man. David sank onto the vinyl couch next to a water cooler. It didn't even burble, either as commentary or punctuation, which until this point in his life he understood to be the purpose of a water cooler. He thanked God that the vinyl couch hadn't made a string of Jerry Lewis-esque fart noises as he'd shifted his weight on it. Whiskey had always made him flatulent. Give us a nip, he'd say, when friends were passing the bottle around when he was younger. Give us a rip, they reply, exacting their payment. Connie knew this. Was she looking at him? Was she expecting farting? Is this what he was to her now? Flatulent and unfucked? A whoopee cushion without the good whoopee? If he would be too, the least he could do was also deny her the satisfaction. Well, ah, ha, ha. He better be. You left me for him, or, you know, for your career. You know it wasn't just my career, Connie said, screwing the top back on the Bushmills and returning it to the freezer. Maybe his current tumbler would make him drunk enough to be unable to find it. She considered a stealthier, at least less inevitable hiding place than the one he'd likely just gotten the bottle from, but there was no time to brainstorm. It'd have to do. She wasn't good at this. In school, when they play hide-and-seek, she always just went to the principal's office, figuring nobody else would want to be there. It was the biggest opportunity in my life. I want my life to make a difference. I want my life to mean something. David rose and reached around her for the freezer door, immediately finding the bottle again. Damn it. Yeah, and um, <laughs> he began grabbing it. I wasn't ambitious enough for you. David, David, you could have done anything that you wanted. She raised her hands above her head as if trying to reach for an example, only finding the time he tried to raise money to hire a handful of graduates of the School of Americas to kidnap the Philly fanatic so he could cut it open as he was inside. If only, he'd said, to find a way of killing the next one. She decided it wasn't the time to mention it. Research, development. Oh, honey, he said. Retreating to a slanted window overlooking the command center, he spun the cap halfway off. He felt suave now, semi-liquid, an indolent slosh of unbothered matter within a shape that looked like him. But the good version. He knew his inky hair was waving to the side above his black-rimmed glasses, and he could only hope that he looked like a Van Doren, or if like Elvis Costello wasn't a dork and an asshole. He said a silent prayer that he did not look like a pep boy. I was happy where I was. Haven't you ever wanted to be a part of something special? He slammed the bottle down, sending the liquor sloshing up and out over the neck. He tried not to think about what an increasingly large percentage of the remaining world supply of bastard whiskey it represented. He dropped his voice. I was part of something special. She raised her eyebrows and took a breath like he just knocked a little of the wind out of her. She knew what he was doing, the effect he wanted to strike. John McClain, but mathlete, and she hated it. Hated that it was working. She hated that she knew it was working. And she hated even more the sudden flash her brain showed her of their making love on the runway. Maybe it wasn't on fire already, ruining the effect, but at the rate they were going, it would be soon enough. Shaking her head, she made for the door, walking past his back, with half an extra swing to her hips and turning only at the end where the can lighting was. Well, if it makes any difference, I never stopped loving you. He turned to look at her. But that wasn't enough, was it? She gave a look he couldn't read. He thought it'd start with disappointment, 
a look he'd seen before, like the time he submitted a failed petition to the state of Pennsylvania to restrict the franchise to the body suffering toxic megacolon in the Modern Museum, or to people suffering the same symptoms who seemed legitimate Philadelphians he waited, though. And soon, the look seemed to resolve into a smile. He remembered that smile. She'd indulged in it after he was arraigned and sentenced by the court inside Veterinarian Stadium. Yes, he'd pepper sprayed and released those captive eagles in the concourse, and yes, they had attacked several fans, but he'd only walked free because she persuaded the magistrate that he'd done it out of an excess of fan zeal. She naturalized him as being from there, in front of God and the law, and he'd never live it down. Yeah, that was a smile. He knew. They both did. Whatever else happened between now and the end of the world, he could count on one thing. When it finally got close enough to the ladder, they were definitely going to fuck in a closet, probably one where the mops were. He watched her turn to walk away and his glance fell below her waist and he thanked God or circumstance for the can light. Let's go, we're on a tight schedule, let's go. Pick it up, man, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Yelling, sky yelling, always yelling. People ask soldier ass all the time what it was like in the service and he always said the same thing. Mostly it's like real life, but yelling. Yeah, they kissed your ass when you were signing up and they told you all the be all that you can be shit your ass could do once you were in, but once they had your ass, it was all yelling. Yelling in basic, yelling to wake your ass up, yelling to move your ass, yelling to get your ass to chow or out of chow, yelling that you need to get your ass to the dock, yelling because your ass fucked up, yelling because your ass was late. Your ass was theirs, and it was all you were. A person was sleepy or sick or late or hungry, but you weren't one. You were ass, and your ass was always wrong. And the only time they stopped calling your ass was when, you know, they called you soldier. So fuck it. Soldier. Ass he was. And he would sit on it until someone told him, get your ass up, soldier. But then along creeped this Will Smith looking motherfucker, looking like he was going to boost a fucking helicopter. How much of this shit was this day going to bring? Everybody else could have a normal apocalypse, but fate had to go and give him an extra credit assignment. Why did this shit have to happen? No, oh, he knew why. The yelling was happening. That shit was simple. Nobody built Area 51 to be logistical support for an entire fighter wing, and they sure as shit hadn't built it for refugees. So here everyone's ass was, humping supplies to and from the fight line. Only the flight line was about 25 yards from the hangar door, and there was an entire KOA campground of first-class civvy dipshits in danger of playing catch with their kids going long for one and misting their way right through a spinning rotor. One second, it's, hey, dad, see if you can get this one. And the next it's, and dad's just a little cloud of you fucked up like somebody just got out of a can of air freshener labeled gore and sprayed it down the pavement. He clocked the Will Smith dude right off the bat. Maybe it was the jug head and the ear sticking right out. Dude looked like it was a trophy cup, just like Will Smith. Just grab an ear and hand the motherfucker over to whoever won the sack race or the singles tournament at the tennis club. But even if he'd look like Uncle Phil, he'd still have stood up because he wasn't moving. Everybody else running around hefting burlap sacks like a flood was coming and they got to get to the riverbank. And here his ass was sitting, elbows on his knees, head down and feeling sorry for himself like nobody else had his problems. Oh, sorry, man. A couple 10 million people just got wasted. And I guess you were the only person who knew someone in America. Fuck you. And there he would have left it. But now Captain Will Smith or whoever the fuck he was, was up and walking a little too straight and a little too low key right to the chopper and letting himself in like everybody was going to see his flight suit and say, by all means, sir, help your fucking self. He looked around. Nobody else was noticing anything, which meant, geez. This was his job to notice. He drew a sidearm and started jogging for the chopper, stopping feet from it and training it at the bridge of Will's nose, right where the engraving would be of the trophy. What the hell are you doing? Get out of there. Great, now he was yelling. Look, I got something I gotta handle, I'm just borrowing it. Oh, well, 
when you put it that way, I suppose it's fine. You just take this multi-million dollar whirly bird up for a look-see piece of shit. Fuck you for even making me say this shit out loud. I could be the only person here not yelling, but you got to get up and fucking try me. No, you're not, sir. Do you really want to shoot me? The Will Smith dude shot back. Okay, he had him there. On the other hand, he had absolutely wanted to shoot him because fuck you, that's why. But on the other hand, the one that he'd have to write all this shit up with, he didn't. And he might never have shot a Marine captain in the head inside a helicopter before, but he knew there was going to be a lot of paperwork, double probably. If the round went through the Champions Cup he was wearing on top of his neck and into an instrument panel or even the window, it took him a second to think about it. One, he didn't want to write down a fucking thing. Two, he already wasn't feeling like working very hard. Since the number of people here who called him soldier or your ass without even flicking a hand near their cap pretty much tripled. Three, fuck it. There was no chain of command here anymore. Near as he could tell, there were Marines, Air Force, and Army assholes all motherfucking each other up and down this base, which even he knew wasn't military anyway. First day he got here, the only people he saw boss and everyone around were creeps and suits. And creeps and suits meant intelligence. And intelligence meant that... Whoever was running the show here was a goddamn dumbass. You could probably put those creeps, family dogs, Santa Claus, and Michael Jackson in a helicopter, park it in front of the hangar entrance, march them past it on the way in, and they still wouldn't notice it was missing when they came out. Fine. Fuck it. He was already mad that he jogged this far anyway. The Will Smith dude opened his mouth again. Just tell him I hit you. What? Kiss my ass. He decided right then and there that this dude wasn't Will Smith. He was fucking Urkel. This dude hitting him would be like a sack of hair trying to chop down a fucking skyscraper. Like a single upright matchstick trying to hold back a machine press. Urkel meeting his fist would be like throwing a potted plant into a tornado. Did this bitch even know what caber toss was? Because this soldier ass was ranked number three nationally at Caber Toss in the United fucking States. He didn't even know what rank he'd be in Scotland, but he was pretty sure it He'd be put somewhere between number one and King fucking Kong. He could caber toss this guy no problem. He should. Hell, he could take his time with it. He thought briefly about grabbing Captain Urkel by the throat and the balls forcibly straightening him out, then pushing his entire body very slowly up through the spinning rudders. Oh, you thought you'd say you beat me up? Check it out, bitch. You're prosciutto. Just pull here a spell and I'll get the last cantaloupe on base and throw it at the helicopter afterward. He smiled. Captain Urkel, that shipper brain, smiled back and put his hand on the yoke. Fine, Urkel. Fine. Fly away. You're not even worth the hand cramp. He was a technician, but as far back as he could remember, he always wanted to be a go-between. As a boy, he'd witness other kids at school striving to memorize the new slang before anyone higher up on the social food chain ever bothered to quiz them on it. Just to avoid ass-beating when they stood there, dumbfounded, wondering what a jive turkey was, but he'd had nobler goals. The more integrated you were in the system, the more likely you were to be told gossip and the more likely you were to be able to pass it on. He wasn't the fastest member of the relay team, but he always ran second or third because he never failed to grab or pass the baton and he loved the idea of covering a greater distance between his teammates than anyone else. His was the last neighborhood in Wheeling, West Virginia, that had the phone company service with party lines. And even though every house had their own ring, he still answered his first, waited to hear the line pick up. And if it was Mrs. Ottenbein, said, Mrs. Ottenbein, it's for you. As far as he was concerned, you couldn't even trust Ma Bell not to bungle a handoff. But this, the Area 51 nerve center underneath the big glass window of the break room where the civvy egghead who looked like one of the Fusco brothers was trying to score with the present secretary. Five stealth birds loaded with the nukes in the air and some absolutely unlicensed ET activity up in the sky. This was his time to shine. Command, this is retail op, crackled the voice of the B-2 leader over the radio. Squadron is in the air. We are on station and awaiting instructions. Roger, break formation, head to target, he radioed back. He took a deep breath, pushed away from the command console, and turned to his direct superior. Sitting just a few paces from the president, the Marine commandant and SACDEF, Nemziki. He was almost feverish at the thought of what he was going to do. They were only a few feet away where he was sitting, and 
They could hear everything he'd said. There was nothing else to do, but this was no time for half measures. Sir, he began, a wave of ecstasy breaking over him as this moment went from an idea to technicolor reality, his voice carrying all the short way to the POTUS himself. They're breaking formation. He sent up a little prayer of thanksgiving that he remembered to wear more restrictive briefs today rather than risk the roomy and tenting potential of boxer shorts. Mr. President, we're initiating sequence code, growled General Gray. The Marine Commandant, sounding for all the world like someone had given Nick note a throat lozenge. Not fixed, but better. Butterier. Like someone had lubricated the sound of pebbles dancing in a garbage disposal. His direct superior was verifying the authorization code Alpha Zulu 689er. Which city will we reach first, the president asked. His voice was different up close. On TV, it boomed more, authoritative. Here it slithered out of his throat like a half-whispered menace. He imagined the president saying, and my daughter would like the waffle cone. In the same voice, he'd say, your mouth is writing checks your ass can't cash. Houston, Texas, ETA six minutes and counting down, his superior told the president. Houston, the president replied. Gray looked pensive, speculative. He nolted a little more quietly at the president. The major cities have been deserted. Civilian casualties should be down to a minimum. The radio crackled again, this time from the watchers on the ground in Houston. Command, this is neighborhood watch. We are in position. Tracking monitors are locked on. We're going to visual recon. They got a roger in response. Someone else at the console spoke, a quick and flat, they have confirmation. It was Baldwin. Jeez, he hated that asshole. Baldwin had big ideas about how the dollar had no inherent value, but gold did. And somehow he both sworn an oath to the military and declared himself something he called a sovereign citizen. But he had even bigger plans for after the service. First, he said he was going to become a cowboy space libertarian for a famous director who liked empowering big-breasted girls by letting them punch people in the tank tops. Next, he was going to use something called social media to stoke something else he called stochastic terror against what he considered the most dangerous group of people in America, school teachers who understand the actual causes of the Civil War. Personally, the technician figured the only question about his future would be which came first, the day he accidentally shot himself in the dick or the day he was arrested for tax fraud. If they made it out of this alive, he hoped Baldwin burned his dick off celebrating by trying to fuck a furnace. His superior confirmed the launch code and the radio crackled from the B-2 commander again. Laser targeting was locked on. We're locked on, sir, his superior chirped. That son of a bitch. Repeating that was his job. Do you wish to deploy? POTUS just stared forward, like he was trying to figure out how to sound like Clint Eastwood when telling the drive through no onions, at a Whataburger. Mr. President, General Gray gargled, if you wish to deploy, the time is now. Still, nothing. Nimziki leaned forward. Mr. President, he said, over POTUS's shoulder, deploy, the President snarled, like he was trying to intimidate a convertible whose top wouldn't go up after he pressed the button. That's a go, Alpha Zulu 689er, that's a go. His fucking boss again, that fucking parrot. There was no nuance there. Anybody could just repeat what they heard. But did they convey the whole meaning? Of course not, that's why he was there. Not that you'd know it looking at this collection of clowns. Here we go, came over the radio. Birds away, babbled Baldwin. Oh jeez, who delegated communication to these people? He could picture the nuke dropping out of the B-2 bay, picture its engines kicking in as the bird surged towards the ominous black skull cap shape hovering over Houston, like it was waiting to settle atop the head of the largest antipope in the universe. If he could see it, he should say it. If he heard it, he damn well should have said it. Instead, he was stuck listening in a room full of the world's dumbest echoes. If Baldwin was rolling any syllables around his mouth, to see how they felt, they definitely weren't from the words he just heard. They were probably, am I being detained? The fucking bimbo. The B2's radio visual confirmation of the nuke and started counting down. May our children forgive us, Polis Ras. Like he was threatening them if they didn't. The radio again. Five seconds to impact. Three, two, one. Then a roar like detonation. Nimziki leapt out of his chair. Oh yeah, that's a hit, Nimziki shouted. Like someone's crowing damn after slamming home a tomahawk dunk on a basketball hoop that had been lowered to seven feet the technician looked at him and knew he was seeing a man who'd never been high-fived willingly 
on the radio, Neighborhood Watch was being buffeted by the atomic shockwave and trying to lock their systems down. Can we confirm that the target was destroyed? Now Poe sounded bored, like he was threatening the words themselves for boring him. He wondered how anyone could sound so bored about nuking Houston. Hadn't the president been there? He sure had, and he'd sworn that he was never going back, and now he knew how easy it would be to keep that promise. He almost smiled, but his superior had skittered over to stand right in front of him and start squawking. Get the tank commander online. I want confirmation that the target was destroyed. Yes, sir, the technician said to his dismay, repeating no one. Red Arrow Alpha 9723, can you read? Repeat, Commander, you're breaking up. We've lost visual. Neighborhood watch bark back. Roger that. We're looking for confirmation. We got the bastard Zimziki crow to POTUS. Clearly, this was a guy who thought the movie Carrie ended with the shot of her headstone. Was he the only person who believed in jinxes? Yeah, Baldwin cheered. Good job, everyone. Congratulations, said Nimziki. At this point, just taunting the war gods. Was Nimziki doing this on purpose? He felt trapped in a horror movie with someone who could only say things like, let's split up. The technician wasn't ready to close the book on this conversation. There was still undiscovered data out there. And he was the only one left he trusted to be verbatim about it. Commander, do you have visual? He radioed back to Houston. I repeat, we need visual confirmation. Has the target been destroyed? Negative, target remains. I repeat, target remains. The answer came back. Up on the view screen, the technician could see it still hanging there. A huge black airborne circle. Like someone had tarred the roof of the Astrodome but knocked the rest of the building away. Call the other planes back, POTUS growled. He sounded like he was looking forward to personally horse-whipping every bomber. Other bombers might have more luck. Sir, we, we shouldn't just give up on this, whined Nimziki. All false innocence. Like he hadn't just put the whammy on the whole operation by trying to uncork the champagne before the screen even cleared. But that's what passed for a good idea with these bozos. Nimziki hadn't had any use for him up until now, but all of a sudden the only thing he could think of was repeating himself. Well, too bad and too late, shitbird. I said call them back, Poda said, staring down Nimziki like he was doing an impression of Jack Palance giving orders to his own answering machine. Abort, crackled General Gray. The technician was certain now that Gray and the president were in a gruff off, and Gray was trying to trump him with his impression of Tom Waits trying to leave a bad party. All right, abort mission, the technician superior said, springing into action with the vim of a minor bird that had just been electrocuted. Issue the abort codes right away. This is an abort, full abort. Do you read? Abort mission right away, he finished. The Popinjay. He couldn't repeat anything with style to save his life or anyone else's. Love it. Each week, my intern Kevin interviews someone who actually worked on the film Independence Day. Kevin, who'd you talk to this time? I'm sitting here with Lisa Gilroy, who is the hot dad consultant for the movie Independence Day. Lisa, how's it going? Mm, that's right. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. So how'd you get into this job, like hot dad consultant? Like what, what, what exactly is that for, for the listeners? I work primarily, I, I got my start in marketing. So in Hollywood, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the town, but it's kind of the capital of the biz, which is something that we say that's short for the business, which is kind of the Hollywood business, which means movies. Um, so I began in marketing, right? So we're looking at the demographics and the people that are interested in watching certain movies. And that's where we stumbled upon kind of a pickly problem, which is that women or those who, you know, any group that doesn't identify as a straight white male, of course, tended to be almost too intelligent uh, to enjoy some of the plots of action movies, uh, such as Independence Day, for example. Um, you know, these audiences were asking questions like, why, how come can they upload a virus onto an alien spaceship so easy? You know, stuff like that. Um, just keen questions that are wondering, hmm, you know, something's fishy here. Why is human technology so close to the spaceship? I'm not buying it. We we're hearing a lot of that. So that's where I was brought in to kind of get that group of people on board with the plot. And we found a way to do that was to make the men hot dads with dead and or dying or divorced wives. So it's interesting you say that because, you know, when it comes to America and American movies, the guy is always the hero, unfortunately, right? So I like the idea that you are there to, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like you're giving the, the, the men within the movie, the hot dads, 
like something to where people can relate to and feel sorry for. That way, when they become the hero, it's all more grander, you know what I'm saying, in the end game. Well, you know, it's not so much that we want these audiences to feel sorry for the hero, but more just horny, sexually bonered or turned on in any sort of sexual bonered way. Gotcha. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. So what we're doing really is because these audiences that I'm speaking of, um, you know, these non-male identifying mostly are too intelligent for the plot, what we do is we kind of trickery with the natural evolutionary brain wiring. So we go, let's get in your brain and then scramble your noodle in a way that makes you think that you are attracted to or in love with the sexual prowess and the strength of the main character. And a good way to do that is to make that character a father figure. Because then, then, our, then our viewer is thinking, hmm, his semen be working and that's important to a lot of women now when it worked when it came to working with bill pullman and, and will smith was one harder than the other when it when it came to to making that that connection for your job both men in this movie i had you know the honor and the privilege to hot datify both of them um, when working with the script and and when we were in development and they both kind of take separate angles at the hot dad approach so bill pullman is what we call more of like a clean dad uh you know he's got the tie on so he he follows this very classic hot dad trajectory where he begins in clean suit he goes to loose tie he ends in dirty tank top, you know, that kind of arc. And then Will Smith is what we call a dirty daddy from the beginning because he has, you know, a hard job. He has dirt on his biceps. He has a strategically placed cut on the face that usually highlights a cheekbone or a jaw structure. And so clean daddy, dirty daddy, both of them equally hot, both of them uh, equally uh, sexually pleasurable to the audience. And, um, you know, one with a biological daughter, daughter, is important here, right? Because we don't mm-hmm. want a son involved. And the mm-hmm. other is a son, but not a bio son. You see what we're doing here? We're kind of yeah. playing with the Oedipal complex here. Yes, makes sense. I was called Dirty Daddy once. Um, it wasn't because I was hot. It was because I had just left the gym and forgot to shower. So um, I'm pretty sure it's not the same thing, but you know, it, it's nice to be called Dirty Daddy every now and then, I guess. Yep, sure. Dirty Daddy, Stinky Daddy, you know, anything that, you know, any adjective that can be paired with the word daddy, if that's happening to you, I would say you're doing very, very well. I noticed that even though he didn't have a daughter or a son or anything like that, Jeff Goldblum seemed to be, he seemed to have come out one of the most popular people from this movie. Mm-hmm. Why is it that? He was not giving a child of some sort, but Will Smith, we're talking Willennium here. We're talking Will Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he had to have a child. Well, why, is, why didn't Jeff Goldblum have to have one? I'm so glad you asked that, Kevin. So Jeff Goldblum in this movie is a perfect example of what we call prequel to a dirty daddy. So you can see the story being set up perfectly, right? In all of our daddies across the board, you're going to have a dead and or dying wife or divorced wife. Divorce was her choice. She's a bad little rotten one and she wants out of the marriage. And our guy's the good guy, okay? And that puts the viewers in a really extremely, you know, horny, vulnerable place. Uh, We feel for him. We want to have sex with him and on him. And so that creates this dynamic where he's being set up for another movie later where he can have a child with this woman who leaves him again. I want to make sure I connect. I want to make sure I connect with you and what you do here. It sounds like to me that sympathy equals sexy. That's exactly right. I'm learning so much here. I'm learning so much here. And I want to add into that also strength, right? So we feel sympathetic towards the father character, but not in a way that we think he can't fend for himself. Actually, Mm -hmm. he's fending for himself so hard that it's making us hard. We want to see biceps that are capable of, of lifting a little girl up into the sky. You know, we want to, we want to hear her go, wee, and we want to see these kind of dirty, greasy biceps, if we're doing Dirty Daddy, in uh-huh. a tank top, lifting a little girl. And that's what's going to do it. So it is kind of that balance between strength and sympathy. If you was to choose, would you prefer Dirty Daddy or Clean Daddy? You know, I, I want to have, I want to have both. So for example, let's think about another Will Smith banger, uh, The Pursuit of Happiness. Oh, we've got a Dirty Daddy, Single Daddy. Uh-huh. By the end, he becomes Rich Suit, Clean Daddy, Millionaire Daddy. Or, you know, the the inverse of that. We have clean daddies such as Bruce Willis in Die Hard. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not aware of his children's situation actually in that movie because I didn't work on that one. But I Mm -hmm. do know that he had a wife that didn't want to be married to him. And how hot is that? Mm -hmm. So he began, you know, more of a clean daddy. And near the end, he was crawling through the vents like a rat, covered in blood and covered in dirt. And I say, what a transition. 
What about average daddies? Do they exist? Or is, is, is there a market for average daddies out here? I mean, maybe they exist in the world, but they should not exist in movies. Field of Dreams. You familiar with this movie? I have never heard of Field of Dreams a day in my life. So it's Kevin Costner. The daddy in this one didn't quite make a splash. He wasn't either clean daddy or dirty daddy. He was farmer daddy. So that's kind of right down the middle. Weird. Where Already the audience is confused. Uh-huh. He has a daughter, which is great. A very cute little daughter played by Gabby Hoffman. Amazing. Uh-huh. Very cute. Uh-huh. That they hit nail on the head. But the biggest problem in that movie, healthy marriage alert. Nothing yeah. kills a boner faster than a healthy marriage. He's got this wife that's with him. Not just by his side the whole movie, but supporting his, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, field of dreams. And it's just kind of yuck. You know, I think that movie could have really blasted into oblivion if she had been dead and or dying. Uh, but, you know, that's that's on them. And that's why that movie was a huge flop. Is there anything you can do for me to, to help me become one of these dads? You know what I'm saying? Or, or, because I, I, I'm, not re- I'm not ready to have a child. I'm not ready to raise any kids or anything like that. But... I'm lonely out here in Hollywood. You know, nobody really knows me. You know, people walk past me, throw things at me, you know, things like that. So, Well, I'm so glad you asked. I have the perfect solution for you, actually. So are you familiar with the movie Seven with Brad Pitt? I Yes, I just recently heard about that. Someone just told me about that recently, yes. Okay, now, would it surprise you to learn that I was a consultant on that film? You're thinking, who's the daddy here? Well, listen, in the end, it's revealed that Brad Pitt's wife was pregnant the whole time. And she's been murdered at the end. Now, no spoilers, but that's what happens. This is a perfect situation for someone who's not ready for kids. Mm -hmm. It's called the pregnant wife dies or is kidnapped or is killed trope. And it is dark. And I'm not recommending to you to get a woman pregnant and then have her, you know, kidnapped. But guess what, Kevin? There is absolutely nothing stopping you from telling people that that's your story. Are you with me? So what I want you to do to, to, you know, dip a toe into this pool of daddy status is start letting the people in your life know slowly but surely that you once were married to a beautiful person and this woman got pregnant and the two of you were so excited for the arrival of the baby until she was kidnapped by your enemies. They took her away to a secret location. They killed her. You sought revenge. You killed all of them. And now you're back on the market. You see what we've done here? We've created a narrative that your semen is working perfectly. You would die and kill for the people that you love, and you're single. Okay? Are we loving this? I, I, really, I really might find love this way. This is great. I think you will. I really think you will, Kevin. I appreciate it. Uh, so I want to thank everybody for listening to this uh, section of the podcast, this interview section. This was Lisa Gilroy. Thank you for coming out and joining us. Absolutely. You're welcome, Daddy. Oh, I'm I'm called daddy now, y'all. You call me daddy the rest of the day. Um, All right, guys, please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Thank you, Kevin and Lisa. Our next chapter was written by Cincinnati's own Chris Messick and narrated by drummer, comedy writer, podcaster, and all-around super talented guy, John Worcester. John Worcester, novelize us. Chapter 14, The Rogue, The Quaff, and the partial can of diet soda in an empty blended scotch bottle. Novelized by Chris Messick, narrated by John Worcester. You would think that stealing a helicopter would be hard. And in fact, for someone like, say, you, it would present an insurmountable challenge. You'd probably get a finger or two lopped off by the spinning blade part, then crash the damn thing into a school bus or a hospital or something. And that's even if you figured out how to get off the ground in the first place, which it pains me to say would be highly unlikely given your general level of competence. But for someone with Captain Stephen Hiller's roguish bad boy charm, it had turned out to have been quite easy. He just hopped in, pushed the fly button, set it in up mode, talked a soldier out of shooting him, then, when his guard was down, laid a sick burn on his ass before he flew off. No, for Hiller, stealing the helicopter, like most things, had been laughably easy. The hard part will definitely be having the helicopter land wherever Jasmine, Dylan, and Boomer are. Because where the hell are they? Last time Hiller saw Jasmine, she was in Los Angeles, a city that was now less what you'd call a city per se, and more a sort of smoldering wasteland that offered limited possibilities for any Earth-based life to flourish. 
especially since the aliens showed up and blasted it with a giant space laser. Of course, at one point, before the alien situation reached the using space lasers to turn large cities into lifeless craters stage, he'd suggested she follow him to El Toro, the base where he did all his airplane stuff with his pilot buddies. But he had no way of knowing for sure whether she'd actually begun the 46-mile trek. Plus, with all the fleeing, the blowing up stuff, and the rampant, if largely one-sided, people-versus-alien aerial combat, she could almost literally be anywhere. On the road, on a spaceship, driving a bunch of survivors around in a giant red municipal vehicle. Okay, so just so we know what we're dealing with here, let's do the math. In the hours since they had last seen each other, she could have traveled hundreds of miles in any direction, at any speed, with any number of random detours thrown in. Sadly, Hiller's roguish bad boy charm powers did not extend to having good math skills. So, after running the numbers, he assumed he was dealing with trillions of square miles, in which they could be anywhere. More troubling yet, she could be in any state of health, from best case, some sort of alien-enhanced godlike state of immortality, all the way down to worst case, being just as dead as hell. No, even someone with Hiller's roguish bad boy poor math skills could clearly see that the chance of finding Jasmine alive, with her son and dog intact, ever, let alone in the first few hours of flying, were extremely slim, to the point where, oh, hang on a second, Never mind. She's right over there. Oh, and there's Dylan. And good old Boomer. <laughs> nice. And bonus, she's got Marilyn Whitmore, the first lady of the United States with her. Given Hiller's roguish bad boy charm, he and Jasmine were forced to do some quick making out before they all flew back to Area 51. But they had to French vigorously, because time was of the essence. The first lady needed a doctor fast, to the point where she was even willing to see someone out of network. Sadly, by the time the chopper landed in Area 51 and Marilyn was whisked to a bed in the secret base's hospital-type area, she already had that soft, calm voice and otherworldly lighting around her that make you understand that, well, let's just say she is definitely not going to be in the sequel. If there even is a sequel. As he left his wife's deathbed, President Thomas Whitmore leaned against the wall for support and turned his mind toward a pointed question that had guided him through many a crisis in the past. What exactly is presidential hair? For a long time back in the day, it was just a powdered wig, which eventually paved the way for James K. Polk's glorious and historically significant mullet. This was followed by an era when presidents were defined not by the hair on top, but instead by their giant hipster beards and mustaches. In modern times, you had your balding guy slickbacks. Think LBJ or Gerald Ford, and your Truman-esque short and tidy side parts. Thankfully, few Americans today remember George H.W. Bush's ill-advised cornrows phase, which tragically led to the U.S. invasion of Panama. But Thomas Whitmore firmly believed that the classic presidential hair has got to be the big old JFK, Reagan, Clinton power quaff. Massive, bold, decisive, wavy maybe, but unwavering. In fact, more than any policy position, his hair might well have been the single most important factor that led to his being elected president. Polling suggested that voters could easily see his hair carved into Mount Rushmore, presumably in place of Teddy Roosevelt, whose oily middle part hairdo has not aged well. In fact, Whitmore's hair was so presidential, even after fleeing from Washington to Nevada just a few microseconds ahead of the explosion that took out the White House in a very iconic fashion, after having his mind basically groped by a psychic alien, after being reunited with his wife only to have her die right in front of him, even after all that, Whitmore didn't feel the slightest compulsion to check his hair when he left his wife's room. He just knew it was going to be perfect. And he needed it to be perfect right now because it was about to get real as hell. See, 
At the end of the long, shadowy hospital corridor sat his dear, sweet daughter, unaware that her mother had just died a few yards away. And rather than asking to see her daughter one last time so she could break the news herself, which, honestly, some people, not Whitmore, mind you, but some people, would say should, by rights, kind of be her responsibility, maybe? Marilyn had decided to use her last breath to accurately point out that Whitmore was a great big liar. Which, whatever. The main point was that, again, his daughter had no idea her mom had just died, and he was going to have to be the one to tell her the news. Oh man, he thought. This is going to straight up blow. He put on a look that read as thoughtful and gravely plopped down next to her. Honey, there's something you need to know. Yes, Daddy? Is Mommy okay? Um, kinda sorta-ish, but also kinda sorta-ish not. Let me put it this way. Remember Gil, that goldfish we got you when you first learned how to go in the potty? Yeah? Well, remember how one day you went to feed Gil, but instead of swimming in his castle, he was floating upside down at the top of his tank? Yes, you told me he was working on his backstroke so he could be in the Fish Olympics. Oh, right, he had said that. Heh, <laughs> yeah, he, um, he won a bunch of gold medals. Well, never mind about Gil. Remember Pukes? Pukes the cat had escaped through an open window and met his end under the front passenger side tire of a Hummer one summer afternoon a couple years ago. Of course I do. Did you find him? You said he'd been kidnapped by the KGB and that Batman himself had sworn an oath not to rest until he found him. Oof. Oh well. A lie can't be unlied. Experience suggested it was better to press on and hope his hair worked its magic. Okay, um, remember Fillmore the dog? How you came home from school and he was just lying there not moving, and you tried to wake him up but he was all cold and stiff and wouldn't move? And he didn't seem to be breathing? Poor Fillmore! Has the vet cured his sleep apnea so he can finally come home? It's been years and years! Uh... Daddy? Yes? Are you saying to me that Mommy is... asleep? Whitmore heaved a sigh of relief. Yes, that's right, honey. She must have caught sleep apnea from Fillmore. He grinned. The quaff came through again, thank God. shouted David Levinson in a thin, reedy voice as he randomly threw some expensive-looking laboratory-type junk in a fit of impotent rage. He staggered spastically around one of the more sciency parts of the base, an empty Johnny Walker bottle he'd found in the trash in his hand. Well, nearly empty. He'd poured in about half a can of tab for appearance's sake. He took a glug and wiped his lips on his sleeve. Here's the thing. David didn't drink, but he liked to pretend to get really drunk when he was mad, in part so he could use the inhibition-freeing effects of alcohol intoxication as an excuse to project a semblance of human emotion. He just wasn't especially good at pretending to be drunk. Uh, uh, the planet! Uh, so pissed about pollution. Uh, the aliens! He slurred unconvincingly. And here was his dad, Julius Levinson, warily watching the whole fairly hacky and frankly not super believable performance. When David saw Julius, he belched right in his dad's direction, like really loud, his breath reeking of caramel color, natural flavors, and aspartame. He never would have done that if he hadn't been pretending to be drinking. Julius rolled his eyes. His son had always been strange, to say the least. And not haha strange either. But ever since David's marriage had understandably fallen apart, Julius was really, really starting to worry. David, I've been meaning to talk to you for a while now. 
You, you talk to me? You don't understand me, old man. David mumbled, then lurched cartoonishly into some kind of science terminal while making fart sounds with his mouth. See, this is what I'm talking about. The way you're always pretending to get drunk from drinking diet soda. I don't know what you're talking about. <gasps> that, David, that's what I'm talking about. You play a drunk like an extra in a 1940s B-movie. People don't talk like that when they're drunk. They don't stagger around like that. They don't... They don't do whatever it is you're doing. David took the beaker off his head and pulled his thumb out of his ear. Yes, they do. This is common drunk behavior, he replied, totally forgetting the slur. No, son, it isn't. Common drunk behavior is to try as hard as is humanly possible to not seem drunk at all. No, you're wrong, Dad. Drunks stagger around and hiccup and do bizarre things like this. He took a box of paper clips from a nearby supply cabinet and dumped them down his trousers. Jesus, son, no. I don't understand why you're doing that. I'm worried about you ever since you and Constance broke up. I think you might be sick. Mentally sick, I'm saying. I mean, sick like you need a shrink, not like you have some kind of, I don't know, maybe some kind of bacteria? Germ? No, but I'm trying to say more, more like a, maybe a virus. David knew when he was busted, but his father had foolishly left him a way out, inadvertently suggesting a way that he could save humanity, which, more importantly, would also get him out of this very uncomfortable conversation. Dropping all pretense of intoxication, David leapt to his feet. Dad, that's it! You're a genius! Time to make these aliens go viral! He shouted as he strode out of the room, making very little sense, and not only because going viral hadn't even been discovered in 1996. Gosh, I am so excited to see how this movie ends, but unfortunately there's no way to do that except waiting until next week on The Novelizers. Until then, Kevin, land this spaceship. Thanks, Andy, and thanks to this week's guest contributors, Jeb Lunn, Josh Johnson, Chris Messick, John Wooster, and Lisa Gilroy. More info about all of our guests can be found in the show description. The Novelizers was created by Stephen Levinson, produced by Stephen, Chris Karwowski, Rob Kuttner, and Suchetta's Bokil. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris. Improv booking by Christine Bullen. Music by Cole Emhoff. Art direction by Crystal Dennis with illustrations by Barry Crane. Intro narration by Robin Reed and interviews by me, Kevin Carter. Special thanks to Luke Dennis and Peter Hayes at YSO Public Radio in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Check out thenovelizers.com for more info about the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and occasionally TikTok. If you enjoy The Novelizers, please support us on Patreon or email thenovelizers at gmail.com to sponsor an episode. Till next time, I'm Kevin Carter, and you know what to do. Novelizers out. Novelizers out.